is Victorian Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives and work of lesser-known Victorian writers. I'm Courtney Floyd, a doctoral candidate in 19th century literature and print culture at the University of Oregon. And I'm Eleanor Dunville, a PhD student in Victorian literature and publishing at Loughborough University in the UK. We are back with part two of the second episode of our summer mini-series. Today we're talking about um, medievalism and Victorian poetry, and my friend and colleague Katie Jo Riviere is joining us again to talk about Tennyson's The Lady of Shalott. We're going to read the 1842 edition and then talk about what it's doing in terms of the landscape of Victorian medievalism. On either side the river lie, long fields of barley and of rye, that clothe the wold and meet the sky, and through the field the road runs by to many-towered Camelot, and up and down the people go, gazing where the lilies blow, round an island there below, the island of Shalott. Willows whiten, aspens quiver, little breezes dusk and shiver, through the wave that runs forever by the island and the river, flowing down to Camelot. Four grey walls and four grey towers overlook a space of flowers, and the silent isle embowers the Lady of Shalott. By the margin, willow-veiled, slide the heavy barges trailed by slow rehorses, and unhailed, the shallop flitteth the silken sailed, skimming down to Camelot. But who hath seen her wave her hand, or at the casement seen her stand? Or is she known in all the land? The Lady of Shalott? Only reapers reaping early, in among the bearded barley, hear a song that echoes cheerily, from the river winding clearly, down to towered Camelot, and by the moon the reaper weary, piling sheaves in uplands airy, listening whispers, tis the fairy, Lady of Shalott. There she weaves by night and day, a magic web with colours gay. She has heard a whisper say, a curse is on her if she stay to look down to Camelot. She knows not what the curse may be, and so she weaveth steadily, and little other care hath she, the Lady of Shalott. And moving through a mirror clear, that hangs before her all the year, shadows of the world appear. There she sees the highway near, winding down to Camelot. There the river eddy whirls, and there the surly village churls, and the red cloaks of market girls, pass onward from Shalott. Sometimes a troop of damsels glad, an abbot on an ambling pad, sometimes a curly shepherd lad, or long-haired page in crimson clad, goes to ride the towered Camelot. And sometimes through the mirror blue, the knights come riding two and two. She hath no loyal knight in true, the lady of Shalott. But in her web she still delights to weave the mirror's magic sights, for often through the silent nights a funeral with plumes and lights and music went to Camelot. Or when the moon was overhead, came two young lovers lately wed. I am half sick of shadows, said the Lady of Shalott. A bowshot from her bower eaves, he rode beneath the barley sheaves. The sun came dazzling through the leaves, and flamed upon the brazen greaves of bold Sir Lancelot. A red cross knight forever kneeled to a lady in his shield, that sparkled on the yellow field beside remote Shalott. 
A gemmy bridle glittered free, like to some branch of stars we see, hung in the golden galaxy, the bridle bells rang merrily, as he rode down to Camelot. And from his blazoned baldric slung, a mighty silver bugle hung, and as he rode his armour rung, beside remote shallop. All in the blue unclouded weather, thick jeweled shone the saddle leather, the helmet and the helmet feather burned like one burning flame together as he rode down to Camelot. As often through the purple night, below the starry clusters bright, some bearded meteor, trailing light, moves over still Shalott. His broad, clear brow in sunlight glowed, on burnished hoofs his warhorse trode. From underneath his helmet flowed his coal-black curls as on he rode, as he rode down to Camelot. From the bank and from the river he flashed into the crystal mirror, Tira Lyra by the river, sang Sir Lancelot. She left the web, she left the loom, she made three paces through the room. She saw the water lily bloom, she saw the helmet and the plume. She looked down to Camelot, out flew the web and floated wide, the mirror cracked from side to side. The curse has come upon me, cried the Lady of Shalott. In the stormy east wind straining, the pale yellow woods were waning, the broad stream in his banks complaining, heavily the low sky raining over towered Camelot. Down she came and found a boat, beneath a willow left afloat, and round about the prow she wrote, the Lady of Shalott. And down the river's dim expanse, like some bold seer in a trance, seeing all his own mischance, with a glassy countenance, did she look to Camelot. And at the closing of the day, she loosed the chain, and down she lay. The broad stream bore her far away, the Lady of Shalott. Lying robed in snowy white, that loosely flew to left and right, the leaves upon her falling light, through the noises of the night, she floated down to Camelot. And as the boat head wound along, the willowy hills and fields among, they heard her singing her last song, the Lady of Shalott. Heard a carol, mournful, holy, chanted loudly, chanted lowly, till her blood was frozen slowly, and her eyes were darkened wholly, turned to towered Camelot. For ere she reached upon the tide, the first house by the waterside, singing in her song she died, the Lady of Shalott. Under tower and balcony, by garden wall and gallery, a gleaming shape she floated by, a course between the houses high, silent into Camelot. Out upon the wharfs they came, knight and burgher, lord and dame, and round the prow they read her name, the Lady of Shalott. Who is this, and what is here? And in the lighted palace near, died the sound of royal cheer, and they crossed themselves for fear. All the knights at Camelot, but Lancelot mused a little space. He said, she has a lovely face. God in his mercy lend her grace, the Lady of Shalott. I love that poem. I'm going to be honest and say that I have the, uh, this is not a very like cultural capital kind of statement, but uh, <laughs> I first encountered this poem through Anne of Green Gables, the um, the 85 version, I think, um, of the film. So not even the book, but um, ever since then, it's been one of my favorites. Um, and I think really apt for today's purposes. Definitely. That's fascinating that you found it in Anne of Green Gables, because uh, it that seems so um, so fitting <laughs> from my perspective. Mm. So what's going on here? It seems like um, you know there's certainly this fascination with the courtly love theme, 
and so maybe I should say something about courtly love um, as a theme in romance. So uh, romance, romantic texts in the Middle Ages are, um, you know, they have some very sort of specific features, one of which is sort of the fantastical or sort of otherworldly um, and so it's not just a love poetry, certainly, as you can see in this poem or here, um, but there's this fantastical element of this curse um, of this lady who we know not why or how was stuck in this tower and, and received the curse, the mirror that breaks, the web, sort of this supernatural um, thing. And, and, you know, it's interesting also thinking about the Victorians' fascination with nature and the idea that the medieval world was really, you know, um, sort of keyed in to the natural world. And so we see sort of the elements of the river um, and the the web, which is sort of her weaving, but sort of not, mm -hmm. um, but could also be imagery of the shattered mirror. Um, so all of these sort of, I don't know, layered um, images of, of nature and the supernatural and the romance all working together. So um, the other issue with the with the romantic text in the Middle Ages is um, the idea of courtly love, which usually uh, works out in the following way. There is an idyllic lady, um, you know, so Guinevere is certainly um, an, a, a key example of that. And, and because specifically she is unattainable, um, she's married already. Mm -hmm. So um, this is the usual way that the courtly love um, theme goes. And then the knight comes and whether she's uh, really available or not, he, he falls madly in love and devotes his entire energy to her. Um, he will guard her, protect her, rescue her, uh, do whatever is the thing that she needs, um, but all while laying his life on the line. And so it's interesting, I thought, when we came to the part about the Red Cross Knight, when Lancelot is first introduced in this poem, um, it's interesting for a couple of reasons. Red Cross being an allusion to Christ, right? Mm -hmm. Which is what the courtly knight is supposed to imitate. Um, on the other hand, Red Cross is a should be a key, it's an allusion to um, Spencer's fairy queen. Mm -hmm. And so that's interesting to me because I don't, I'm wondering how the Victorians would view um, Spencerian medievalism because he too uh, had a fascination with the medieval and sort of a, um, wanted to adopt it in so much of his work, but especially the fairy queen. Um, and so that would be interesting. It seemed to me that there was sort of layer upon layer of medievalism going on here. <laughs> and I was geeking out for sure. So, you know, he, he bold Sir Lancelot, uh, a red cross knight forever kneeled, it says, to a lady in his shield. So I'm assuming he sees her reflection in his shield. And again, that reflection is reflected off of her own mirror, right? Mm. Because she's not facing him out the window. She's facing the mirror. Um, and so they only see this sort of double mirrored image of each other adds to that, that layering effect. So anyway, so it seemed to me, it's strange that, uh, that this poem sort of 
goes the other way with this courtly romance idea that, um, you know, he, he sort of, he kneels and, you know, kneeled to his lady, but it doesn't say he ever swears his, his fiat necessarily. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, true to Lancelot, however, he leaves, (laughs) (laughs) he, he, uh, loves him and leaves him. And so she, uh, she then does this, this thing that I feel like is a real Victorian thing, which is to then commit suicide Mm. (laughs) in a way. Um, But you guys can correct me on that. Yeah. Also, it's interesting that you um, read that as kind of mirror reflections. I think it's fascinating. I was just assuming that it was his his standard, like, painted on his shield, maybe, Mm. Mm. Um, which sort of just indicates that he, like, represents this sort of standard of knighthood but is like blundering along obliviously to when he has the opportunity yeah Um, which is why i love literature is that you can have these different readings of it and both open up different things a red cross knight forever kneeled well that would be in that would that would fit really nicely with forever kneeled because if it Mm. is you know the image on his standard which she views through her mirror but which he's not swearing to her yeah at all um that's yeah that's fascinating particularly because it says earlier that she she's never had a night mm-hmm. um to swear to her and perhaps that desire is the the breaking of that of that sort of the vow mm-hmm. that she is obligated to keep in the curse yeah i mean the other thing that occurred to me while you were discussing this um is that uh so spencer is kind of creating his own medievalism but also generating a very specific kind of fairy tale like literally it's mm-hmm. the fairy queen mm-hmm. um, and and this poem really kind of uh, echoes many of the sort of archetypal um, fr- frameworks or the archetypal framework of Rapunzel for example yeah yeah um, in which she sort of leaving the tower falls from grace because she's become pregnant out of wedlock mm-hmm. um yeah so there are some really interesting yeah uh, and in fact the other version mm-hmm. i um refers to her as fairy right away in the beginning when he when it's describing yeah tis the fairy um yeah so when it's discussing like how she can be heard singing and um chanting cheerily like an angel singing clearly or the stream of Camelot, piling the sheaves on furrows, airy beneath the moon, the reaper, weary, listening, whispers, tis the fairy, lady of Shalott. So there's certainly um, that, you know, explicit in the poem. Yes. At least in the old yeah. version. We have it here too, actually. Oh, it is in this, yeah. it is in this newer version too, at the very end of part one. Very good. Yeah, it's just moved down one stanza. Right, right. Okay, so... Interesting also that she, um, if she's a fairy, she's also uh, reproducing archetypal um, fairy imagery from the Middle Ages as well, especially in that she lives in this liminal space on water. Mm-hmm. Um, she's not in the world of Camelot, right? The, the real world, the world of the knights and ladies and courtly, everything and commerce and um, so she's not there. She's sort of otherworldly. She's up in this tower. Um, she doesn't belong, sort of, and yet she has this power. Um, 
and she's a woman, so she's subject as well. Mm-hmm. Subject and object and <laughs> all of the above. Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's fascinating. What do you guys think about this, that she writes her name, the Lady of Shalott, on the boat? Yeah, that's a really interesting... It's like she foresees that they're going to find her dead. Mm-hmm. That becomes her um, gravestone in an interesting way. Yeah. So I'm interested in what you guys can say about um, the sort of the gothic and medievalism and... Mm-hmm. You know, because Gothic is not my specialty, but it seems yeah. that the Victorians held a view of medi- of the medieval as Gothic. Mm-hmm. So can you talk yeah. about that a little? I just want to jump back, actually, to what you said about romance as um, sort of a genre in the medieval period. Well, certainly by the 18th century, it was considered a genre, and it's that genre from which the Gothic sort of sprouts okay. fully formed. Um, so almost always... Gothic romances are set in medieval um, places, even if it like um, like medieval castles, if not in a medieval time, but sometimes both. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, did you have something to add, Eleanor? <laughs> well, much in the press earlier, it was making me think of Catherine Morland in Northanger Abbey, who's reading all of these mm-hmm. Gothic medieval texts and going around Gothic castles or going to visit them. Or not being invited to visit them. Oh, where she's reading Anne Radcliffe's um, the the mysteries of Udolpho, probably. I think. <laughs> yeah, Northanger Abbey. Yeah, I don't remember the character's name, but yeah, yeah. It's a the at like the by the nineteenth century, certainly the Gothic had really become associated with um, women. I think in part because it really. Um, like to be able to be frightened on that level as it indicates a sense of um, or it indicates a level of uh, sensibility to the world um, that you're open to being affected emotionally and physically by nature and the supernatural um, which is then sort of parodied throughout Victorian literature as something like that a weaker-minded woman would be uh, would read a lot of these novels and then become mentally affected by them. Mm. Um, mm. But I think there's also sort of um, Tennyson has sort of doing like a throwback to Shakespeare here with like Ophelia imagery, um, which is really popular in the Victorian period. Um, actually, in a couple of episodes, we're going to talk about. Um, Waterhouse's Ophelia painting, which is a really well-known painting of just um, Ophelia laying in a river. Right? Oh, uh-huh. So mm-hmm. women, water, and suicide are really interesting themes that sort of emerge throughout the period. Yeah. I'm interested in her uh, sort of agency, lack of agency here in, mm. that, in, ter- in those terms um, because she she um you know turns away from the mirror uh but she know you know as soon as she does so she knows what's going to happen um and yet she goes through with it she doesn't try to reverse the action in any way um and ends up in this water suicide of you know it's interesting that jumping from the tower 
Mm. Doesn't cause the suicide. Somehow she just mysteriously finds this boat. Yeah. Yeah, that's what's really interesting, maybe about the fact that she's put her name on it as well. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. There's, it's not. It's not clear why she's died. She's just got into the boat and sung some songs and ended up dying. I was going to mention as well that obviously Waterhouse also paints a really famous Lady of Shalott picture that I've dropped into the show notes. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. We're also talking about that one. Mm-hmm. Well, in episode um, episode four, we'll, I'll, I'll be talking to my art historian friend, Anna Wager, about um, Victorian adaptations in art. So very cool. it'll be interesting to build on that there. Um, yeah, because I was thinking when you were saying about Anne of Green Gables, it's interesting that Victorians adapt earlier Victorian adaptations of medieval texts. It's very mm-hmm. meta. Yeah, because uh, Anne of Green Gables is late 1800s. Yeah. Um, well, also this sort of um, weird pairing of mirrors with suicides becomes a common theme in late century Victorian novels. I'm thinking of two in particular. Marie Corelli's 1895, The Sorrows of Satan, which ends with a new woman who has read too many um, risky sort of sensation novels uh, and feels herself um, irrevocably corrupted. She sits in front of her mirror and um, just watches herself as she poisons herself. Oh. Um, and then... There's another one. Let me see. It's right here because I don't remember. It's um, Ella Hepworth Dixon's The Story of a Modern Woman. It's actually... um, What year is this? 1894, so the year before. um, Also ends with the new woman protagonist um, having decided not to get married and really despairing about her ability to find a joy in a modern existence that requires her to work all of the time also sits down in front of her mirror and commits suicide or that's the implication at the end of the text mm-hmm. um so i think this becomes more of a thing later in the century but it's not quite the same here yet or maybe it is maybe she's because this sort of like the curse that she's under sort of plays out like a self-fulfilling prophecy yeah Right, and the mirror bit just made me think of a couple of mirrors that you see in Elliot. So there's the section of Adam Bede where the very, very kind of artificial Hetty sits in front of the mirror and puts the very expensive earrings that her rich lovers bought for her on and she sits and she's kind of transfixed by her own image, which is ultimately that relationship is her downfall. And there's also the bit in Middlemarch where it's just saying that when a mirror cracks, you can trace all of the different uh, cracks can't think of a different word for it. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting uh, connection because in Middlemarch, George Eliot is using this um, theme throughout of the web and like how mm. we're all connected um, as a community. All of our actions affect somebody else across the web. Oh, that's that's really really interesting. Yeah. yeah. I'm finding this part where she um, she looks in the mirror to see these various thing these various um sort of people going by and she she finally says i am half sick of shadows um which is fascinating to me because certainly she is one of the shadows in the reflection Mm -hmm. um and it's then right before she um sees (laughs) 
re- like reflects uh, or sees um, Sir Lancelot. Um, and it, I'm wondering if, if like her view of, uh, like I'm wondering what is Tennyson doing <laughs> with yeah. her her view of herself as shadow and um, and then everything else. It seems very like platonic to me, like the the cave metaphor, mm. you know, um, and and sort of this idea about what what kind of life is worth living. And it um, I'm just you know, I'm trying to think about the connection between that and sort of this half courtly love poem and half idealized woman, idealized to us, the readers, but not to anybody in the poem until the very end when she's dead. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, this idea of what, you know, if all you know is shadows in a mirror something's clicking there for me and I'm not able to put my finger on it yeah I think it might be worth parsing just really practically speaking what's going on in the beginning of the poem we have Mm -hmm. the lady of Shalat facing inward away from a window she sees she sees what's outside that window in her mirror the reflection of it and she's weaving a tapestry of what she sees but she's always facing inward into what's essentially her domestic space um, mm-hmm. and not out into the public space. Um, she's always seeing something within a frame. So that's really kind of artificial limit that's placed right. on it. Nice. Um, and she is taking what's already a reproduction and reproducing it again in her art. Hmm. So interesting because Tennyson himself is taking a reproduction and reproducing it himself mm-hmm. in this poem. Um, yeah. And perhaps, you know, not in the same way that the female uh, non-agent is only allowed to look inward at her domestic space, but perhaps at least along the same lines, you know, we could say that the speaker is looking inward on what what this image is doing, you know, what this story is doing, mm-hmm. or what he wants it to do. I mean, I think while she's in the tower, on the one hand, she's bound by these sort of um, borderline domestic tasks, but on the other, she has this sense of freedom where she can just observe and do what she will with those observations. But as soon as she turns and looks out at the, quote, real world, um, she's suddenly subject to this. I want to just sort of play fast and loose with the curse and say that it's um, social contract. My brain keeps wanting to do that. Mm. So she's suddenly bound by the social contract, um, this courtly love, and maybe her failure or, or the failure of that to snap into place for her contributes to her demise. So she can't exist outside of it except within this space that has been destroyed by her wanting to step outside of it. Hmm. Sorry, I'm just looking at the differences between the two editions because it's so fascinating what's changed. And the last line especially strikes me, uh, the last stanza, because they've changed from well-fed wits to knights. Yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah, so the in the eighteen in the eighteen thirty three edition, the last stanza reads they crossed themselves, their stars they blessed, night minstrel abbot, squire and guest, there lay a parchment on her breast, the puzzled more than all the rest, the well fed wits at Camelot, the web was woven curiously, the charm is broken utterly, draw near and fear not, this is I, the Lady of Shalott. In her placing that parchment on her chest, almost that gives her more agency than the later version where Lancelot just comments on how lovely her face is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what's with the revision there? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's almost like in this earlier ending, uh, Tennyson is saying like even the even the smart dudes at Camelot don't know what to make of her curse and her existence mm-hmm. and like the curious way she died. Um, so he's sort of challenging us to to understand what the well-fed woods of Camelot could not, and that challenge disappears. Yeah, and also there's a sense of power and that she has the power to scare them and she seems aware of that and has to address this attitude of saying, fear not. Is there any medieval insight? Well, um, it's well. what's interesting is that um, both endings are <laughs> like really medieval. <laughs> there's, the, there's the one ending, you know, in the earlier version that gives her this power, this sort of wiliness, this uh, feminine agency, which we can see reflected in texts like Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, where the women in that text drive what's happening from Morgan Le Fay to um, the Green Knight's wife, mm-hmm. who um, who is seducing Gawain and trying to, you know, both physically and rhetorically draw him into her chamber and make him fall. Um, and, and where she has this power to sort of uh, wield her feminine wiles and, and make him, you know, make a big mistake. Uh, on the other hand, there's the later edition of this poem where, you know, all of her agency is just sort of covered up by Lancelot's musing a little space about her lovely face, right? Um, Mm -hmm. This very conventional sort of prayer at the end, God in his mercy lend her grace, the Lady of Shalott, you know, um, that's, that's constantly happening in, uh, all, you know, across medieval textual land. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So, you know, where the, where the feminine voice and agency is either, covered over or made, you know, a nice little wrapped up package at the end where she's not that intimidating or not that, um, you know, finally uh, scary. So it's interesting to me what what the speaker is doing here between these two versions where um, it's kind of like he's trying out, you know, here's medieval ending number one (laughs) here's medieval ending number two which one do we like better and that's really interesting because this is actually still really young Tennyson he's in his experimental phase Um, critics have really said he doesn't hit his stride until later I think Mm -hmm. with In Memoriam but I might be misplacing that Um, but he certainly hasn't really earned renown yet he's not the poet laureate yet um 
and even though this is maybe one we remember more now I don't even I don't know if it would have been like a shining example of his work in the Victorian period so that experimental quality is sort of a fascinating tell of his stage in his career maybe yeah now that you say that I'm even more intrigued about why the revision mm-hmm. and what the aims were it'd be interesting maybe to go back and look at the section that he where he gets rid of that one stanza yeah to try and see what he's doing there yeah uh, because here uh it's just a little a little further up where in the earlier version he says a cloud white crown of pearl she dight all raimented in snowy white that loosely flew her zone in sight zone is yeah, that strange? That is a strange word. Yeah. Sorry. Her zone in sight, clasped with one binding diamond bright, her wide eyes fixed on Camelot, though the squally east wind keenly blew, with folded arms serenely by the water stood the queenly lady of Shalott. Now, when I read that, my mind immediately goes to the Pearl, which is a anonymous poet poem written, they think, by the same poet of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. But that, you know, that's an image, that's a heavenly image. Mm. That's her, you know, wearing a a crown of pearls. Um, That's very much about the afterlife. Mm. So it's it's interesting. Uh, Also, the idea of her being a queen and having this, um, like this stance she's in at the end of that, that stanza where she has her arms folded serenely by the water and she's standing there queenly Mm -hmm. um, with this crown. That to me seems like an image of power or an image of um, at least uh, sort of an awareness of who she is and what, what she's doing in this moment. Yeah. And Tennyson builds on that in the next stanza of this Mm -hmm. earlier edition by describing her, uh, as with a steady stony glance like some bold seer in a trance beholding all his own mischance yeah, yeah. meet with glass with a glassy countenance right the uh, comparison there yeah um her queenly status to a um a male seer mm-hmm. who can see all in front of him you know um and and this line that he's changed between those two versions with a steady stony glance in the earlier version and in the later version and down the river's dim expanse, right? She's focused, um, ready to face her fate in that earlier in that earlier version, um, whereas perhaps less so in the second version. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting. It seems to me, just based on this uh, quick study we've done, mm-hmm. that the the later version sort of tones down her her power, tones down her sort of stoicism and um, her ability to wield what power she has, even in death. And so I'm, I'm now I'm really curious about where why. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think we might have to hunt down because someone has to have written about this. We'll try and hunt something down and put it in the show notes. Oh, I'm sure. I'll see if um, one of my former professors has written anything about it, because uh, when I but when I first studied this in a course with her, she had really fascinating things to say. Um, so I'll see what I can dig up. Interesting. But yeah, I mean, so it's very clear, at least to me in the first version, that he has sort of a rightly complex view of 
this woman in his in his story, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that she's not, and and I say rightly complex because that's true to the medieval view of uh, the female agent as well. Um, it's not, you know, it it's maybe the Victorians who who sort of toned down the complexity mm-hmm. of the female agent um, by by looking back to this simpler time where there was a sort of um, uniform moral view I think I read in one of the the uh, essays that you linked to mm-hmm. um, about you know the ways that the world uh, should work maybe even a more socialist period or a time that was more focused on um, sort of how people proceed in the world and so it's interesting that maybe reflected a little bit in the difference between these two versions Yeah, I mean, it certainly seems like that's what Tennyson's doing when he's revising is um, making the Lady of Shalott more typically feminine by a mid-Victorian standard. Right. Yeah. Right. Fascinating. Okay, I think we're out of time. This has been a fascinating and very fun discussion. Indeed. Um, So thank you again, Katie Jo, for joining us. Yeah, I was really glad to participate. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for joining us. It was really nice to virtually meet you. (laughs) Likewise, likewise. Um, And thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back soon with another episode. Thank you. Bye. Victorian Scribblers is written by me, Courtney Floyd, and my co-host, Eleanor Dumbill. All episodes are produced by me with editing assistance from Eleanor. The podcast is made possible by donations from listeners like you. If you liked what you heard today and want to help ensure more fabulous content, head to victorianscribblers.com slash support us. After the ball, done by Mr. John J. for this podcast is courtesy of Muse Open and Free Music Archive under Creative Commons Attribution Licenses. Our theme is Joseph Miroslav Weber's String Quartet, number two in B minor, performed by Steve's Bedroom Band. The music for our Around the World feature is Puddington Bear's Bit Rio, and our closing music is George J. Gaskin's 1893 performance of After the Ball. After the ball.